Macworld Podcast number 132 for October 8th, 2008. Sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. It's early October, and naturally that means the November issue of Macworld has hit the newsstands. And no, I don't understand this time-shifting magazine date thing either. But in that issue, you'll find my article, The Kids Safe Mac, a feature story about using Leopard's parental tools to help keep your Mac and your child safe when a younger member of the family sits at its controls. In honor of the article's childlike theme, I thought it only appropriate to have my daughter conduct this short interview. We follow up that interview with a roundtable discussion that addresses App Store issues. Apple has made some important changes to the App Store, and Macworld.com's executive editor, Philip Michaels, discusses those changes and changes they hope to see with Macworld editorial director Jason Snell and associate editor Dan Morin. It's at this point in the podcast that I normally offer up some news and commentary, which is my personal code language for rants and beefs. But I'm going to give it a miss this time for a variety of reasons. First of all, Phil, Jason, and Dan have got the App Store issues nicely covered, and I'm heartened by some of the moves Apple has made of late in that regard. Then, Apple News has been otherwise pretty slow after the iPod announcements a few weeks ago. And finally, I'm holed up in a hotel room in Fresno after speaking to the local Mac users group, and I'm mellowing out after a terrific Thai dinner, and it's darn difficult to work up a good rant. So, no news, no commentary. Instead, please allow me to introduce my daughter and the subject of Leopard's parental controls. Hi, this is Adelaide Breen, and I'm here to talk to my father about the KidSafe Mac, an article he wrote for the November issue of Macworld. Welcome, Dada. Hi, Addie. Thanks for doing this. How come I can't do anything I want with the computer? I won't break it. I know, honey, you're really careful with computers in our house, but when you have really little kids around computers, and you're seven, so not a really little kid anymore, they can sometimes hurt the computers by accident. For example, they might mash down a bunch of keys or move the mouse around and accidentally choose a command that erases files or put a CD covered with peanut butter into the media drive. Lots of things. So for these little kids, you have to protect your Mac so bad things don't happen. Now, for bigger kids, the problem isn't so much that they're going to break things, but instead they might spend too much time surfing the web or chatting with their friends or doing things that are really meant for grown-ups instead of doing their homework or playing outside or spending time with their friends and family. So Apple has tried to help out by creating something called parental controls. What are parental controls? They're a way for parents or teachers or librarians to limit the kind of stuff you can do with a Mac so you won't hurt it or do things that you shouldn't be doing with a computer. For example, for little kids, you might turn off their ability to look through the hard drive or mount CDs and DVDs or restart or shut down the Mac or turn off applications that might be confusing or destructive. And for older kids, you can limit the websites they're allowed to visit, the hours that they can be logged into the computer, and the people that they can email and chat with. Are they better in Leopard than they were in Tiger? As a matter of fact, they are. Tiger has parental controls, too, and they're not bad. As with Leopard's parental controls, you can turn on Simple Finder, which strips the finder of things like a hard drive icon, Windows sidebars, and some of the more advanced menu commands. 
and you can select which applications, email addresses, and chat handles the account can use. But it doesn't let you set up time limits that the Mac can be used. For example, under Leopard, you can constrain computer use to certain hours and force the account to log out at a certain time. You know, like your bedtime. Don't forget about remote administration. Good girl. I was just about to mention that. With Leopard, you can configure parental controls from another computer on the local network. So you don't have to hammer down your teenager's door to administer their Mac. You can do it from the living room. And you can also have logs of their activities sent to your computer. This sounds really boring. Isn't there anything I can do to make it more fun for me? Oh, sure. You know how you like to play with Photo Booth? You can make the silliest face you like in front of the iSight camera, and we can use that as your user identity. And that means when we log onto the computer, that's the picture you'll see that represents you. And we can choose any desktop pattern you like. If you want to take a picture of the cats, we can use that for your desktop pattern. We don't want working and playing on the Mac to be boring. We just want it to be safe for you and the computer. When I get older, you're going to let me do more stuff with the Mac, right? Absolutely. Like I said, when you're younger, you need to keep the Mac safe. When you get older, I'm not worried about that. You'll know your way around the computer better than I do. But as your parent, I want to make sure that you don't accidentally wander into some parts of the Internet that are meant for grown-ups. I can do that by limiting the websites you can visit, decide who you're allowed to email and iChat with, and limit the amount of time you spend sitting in front of the computer. Your Mac is really cool, and it's a really helpful tool, but it's not as cool as your friends or gymnastics or swimming or soccer or your dance class. If my friends and I find a way to break parental controls, do you have other ways to keep me from doing stuff? Well, yeah, if I need to, I can use another tool like Intego's Content Barrier, which you use for stern filtering of websites and email, and it can block file sharing and media streaming. But honestly, honey, some of the best protection I can provide is to talk to you about what is and isn't okay to do with a computer and be with you when you're using it. If you see things that confuse or scare you, tell me and I'll do something about it. Or if someone's bothering you, I'll do something about that too. And when you're older and have more experience, you'll know what we expect of you. That was very interesting. Thanks for joining me, Dada. Now, can I go watch the Three Stooges? Sure, honey, you bet. You did a great job. Tell Mo, Larry, and Curly I'll be there in just a sec. And now, before our roundtable discussion of the App Store, a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of digital spoken word entertainment, offering over 40,000 audiobooks for your iPod. Get a free audiobook download when you try the service at www.audiblepodcast.com slash macworld. Check out great titles like I Was or The Second Coming of Steve Jobs with your free audiobook credit. This is a special offer for Macworld podcast listeners, so to get your free audiobook, visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Now, Philip Michaels, Jason Snell, and Dan Morin discuss the App Store. If it's a Macworld podcast, we must be talking about the iPhone. I'm Philip Michaels, the executive editor of Macworld.com, and I am joined by Jason Snell, Macworld's editorial director. Hello. And Dan Morin joins us through the, the mysteries of VoIP. Uh, Why? Hello. He's, he's our associate editor. And um, we're here to talk about some of the latest developments in uh, 
iPhone world and uh, our thoughts on those. I believe that we'll go with uh, two-minute opening statements followed by 30-second rebuttals. Uh, and if you could please address your questions to each other and, and not the audience, that would be great. Oh, wait, no. Those Why are the, is Phil those are the debate rules. these things, Dan? <laughs> you you <Those> betcha. <laughs> those are the debate rules. Sorry. Let's start with talking about the um, iPhone NDA being lifted, um, something that Apple did last week as we're recording this podcast. And uh, first off, what, what specifically does that mean, lifting an NDA in, in this particular case? I yield my time to the uh, my colleague from Massachusetts. <laughs> well, thanks. I, you know, I'd like to take some of the credit for this. I have no idea if Apple reads Macworld. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they love every word that we write. But you know, I wrote a whole long thing about this last week, and then or two weeks ago, and then they magically lifted the NDA. Like, <laughs> I'm sure it was later. you. I'm sure it was it was me, right? Absolutely. Excellent. Um, so what this means basically is that up until this point, iPhone developers, uh, third-party developers who've been working on iPhone applications have been bound by a confidentiality clause in the agreement uh, when they download the software development kit, which basically said that they couldn't talk about pretty much anything uh, related to iPhone development, including even to other people who were also bound by the same agreement. And this was a real problem for a lot of developers because they're very used to relying on each other as a resource. Uh, Mac developers are such a tightly knit group that uh, they are they communicate a lot with each other. They you know they hang out with each other. They use each other's uh, information to help solve their own problems. So if one person figures out how to do a particularly tricky little task, they they often share that information even with their competitors. Uh, and so a lot of them were very frustrated that they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't share information between each other and uh, other sources as well. For example, a bunch of publishers who are interested in writing books about, so you know, so you want to be an iPhone programmer, here's sort of a way to get started, couldn't do that because all the information about developing for the iPhone uh, was under non-disclosure. So raising this, uh, this restriction, uh, as Apple has now done, is, is a big deal for, for developers and for anybody who's interested in programming for the iPhone. Yeah, I think within uh, five minutes, uh, Craig Hockenberry, who's the developer of Twitterific for the Mac and for the iPhone, had posted uh, a bunch of sample code that he obviously had ready to go for the lifting of the NDA. And uh, and you Wait, know, we would think he had that ready to go. Yeah. And he wasn't just out going to violate very, the NDA. He's, he's very, very excited. <laughs> he's very speedy, and he mm -hmm. engages his caps lock key, and then he begins to type. But. Um, you know, the example, too, of not just – I mean, obviously, they could talk – the ones who are under NDA could talk to each other in, in, in private settings. But there was no way – unless you asked the right question or happened to bump into the right person who had solved a particular problem, you couldn't exactly go out and do a Google search for it. And Nor, nor was there any discussion allowed um, on some sort of secure venue that within Apple. Um, there was no mailing list. Um, you know, no message board that was behind the scenes. In fact, Apple prohibited discussion of iPhone development on the Mac mailing lists for developers. So that was the that was the huge problem: is that unless you happen to be talking to somebody who had an answer to your problem, um, you would just have to go and you know there might be a guy who knows a guy who solved the problem. But if you don't happen to find out up until the lifting of this NDA, you were pretty much out of luck. And this is not an academic discussion. I know examples of this. I mean, I know Craig talks about um, 
uh, one thing he struggled with and then um, happened to be in a place where somebody said, oh, yeah, so-and-so from this other developer had that problem and he solved it. And then I think he found that you know, he had done weeks of work to work around a bug that this other guy had solved and it would have saved him those weeks and the NDA wasted his time. Are, are there any remaining restrictions to what developers can and can't do or can and can't talk about? Well, they still can't talk about unreleased software, which is to say software that Apple has not released. So, for example, the the forthcoming, the future beta versions of the software development kit, which may contain features that Apple hasn't finished implementing yet, are still under NDA. But that's pretty much the same as uh, the way that Apple handles Mac OS X development, which is to say you can talk all you want about Leopard, of course, but you can't talk necessarily about, say, developing for Snow Leopard, though the developers have a lot of information on that currently. So how does this affect me, the 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 Joe average six pack iPhone user, <laughs> uh, walking down the street, playing with my my iPhone apps, playing my Cro Mag Rally, or or checking checking sports scores on Sportacular? How what what do I care if an NDA has been lifted? Well, I think the I think the real answer to that question for Joe six pack is that. You've got developers who are more efficient because they can talk to each other about best practices. They can say, oh, do it this way. And they, as Dan said, they share information. Even among competitors, they share information. They can share code. They can share examples. This worked. This didn't work. It means that the apps that you buy as the regular guy on the street are going to come faster. They might be cheaper. Um, there will be more of them and they'll be better because the whole development community is going to be able to be that much more efficient. It also means that that developer who wants to learn, who in two years is going to write the groundbreaking app that everybody loves, um, actually can go out and buy a book and start learning how to program for the iPhone, where without the NDA, that book wouldn't exist either. Well, I mean, it's not, yeah, I mean, as Jason's saying, it's not something that you'll necessarily see tomorrow, all of a sudden, all these like great apps showing up. But, you know, this is kind of a long-term investment for uh, sometime in the future, in the next you know few months or years, that there there really are going to be a, a lot more applications that that have this sort of they have a higher level of quality brought to them because of this ability to exchange information. Future smuture. I want I want instant <laughs> gratification. Well, you might you might actually see it where um, there are uh, there's source code that gets released that lets other people pick that source code up and do something with it. Uh, rapidly too. So we might see some of that where where um, somebody says, look, I figured out how to do this. Here it is. They release it. Um, the source code's out there and somebody else picks it up, drops it into their app and you've got something new. It, it could happen. And my, for, under for those my, my understanding – My instant gratification. Yeah. My understanding yes, is that ahead, from Dan. now on uh, all iPhones will be made out of chocolate as well. So there's a really immediate benefit to you. I, I think that's entirely made up. That that uh, <laughs> if your iPhone comes wrapped in tin foil mm-hmm. in a paper sleeve, it is a chocolate iPhone. I think the chocolate iPhone dropping dropping the news on that violates the NDA. So let's move on to something that does impact users more directly, and that's the change that Apple announced almost about a week and a half ago. Uh, that now if you want to post a review at the App Store of an iPhone application, you have to have bought the review previously. You bought could, the product, right. Bought the product. Excuse me. I'm <laughs> just throwing the word review into to the sentence repeatedly. I'd like to buy a review, please. Mm, I uh, think you can on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> but um, w- what are our thoughts 
our thoughts, our collective thoughts, and please speak in unison when answering this question. Uh, we believe that <laughs> about this change to the, the hive mind says to the app store review process. Well, I, I think that um, you know the the there are a lot of issues. We actually had a piece about this that we posted last week on MacWorld.com. A lot of issues with the iTunes Store. Um, being the basis for the App Store, that the App Store is really based on this music store model that Apple started with. And for music and TV, you can write a review of something without having bought it from Apple because you might have bought it from somewhere else. I mean I can buy something from Amazon and write a review on iTunes and that's perfectly reasonable. That the App Store, it's the only place you can buy these apps, which means if you haven't bought them, um, you haven't used them. And yes, you might have a jailbroken version if you're a, a member of the jailbreak community, but it's not the same version. Those those apps have largely changed. Um, and so what you ended up getting was junk. And it's not to say that people who um, have an opinion shouldn't be able to, to air it, but you had people who had never bought a program saying, this program's too expensive, you should buy this other program, or this program should be free. And the purpose of the review is for people who've used it to say what they liked and disliked about it. Um, and that content was just getting overwhelmed by people who wanted to use those reviews as basically a message board or to rip on an app or to promote somebody else's app. So you know, to Apple's credit, they did listen to the criticism or figured it out themselves either way and say, you know, you're right. If you haven't bought it, you really shouldn't be able to review it. So that makes – it's pretty logical. Well, as Jason's saying, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I mean, would you go to a, you know, listen to a movie review from someone who hadn't watched a movie or, you know, a book review from someone who hadn't read the book? And would you use that as your basis for whether or not you want to read or watch this product? I would um, be fascinated to do that. I think that would be a, a great way to go through life. Yes, tell me, tell me, person who, who has never seen a movie, how is Spider-Man 3? Oh, they could probably tell me. It's terrible. So. <laughs> Well, that might be fun for you, but the rest of us kind of like our, a little side of experience with our. All right, reviews. okay, I see where you're coming Maybe from. We're different. I don't know, but that's a you're you're a, you're a hippie. What are you talking about? That's crazy talk. You mean people who actually use products uh, can tell you more about them than people who never used them? That's crazy talk. Can developers uh, post on? Their product pick. Because when I go to the App Store, I notice a lot of people, like you say, tend to use it as a message board where they post questions about the product or they they uh, uh, mention complaints about the, the product. And can the developer go on and say – ideally, they're not going on to, to fluff up the rating for their review but going on to say, well, we've got a future version coming and da-da-da-da-da. I don't think they're, they can particularly – they can. I know they can petition to have reviews removed – if they're inaccurate, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but Although what I've heard is that that isn't actually happening, yeah, that, that they I don't mean, get removed. And they can post reviews for their own products and I've seen some of them do it as a response and they always give themselves five stars, which is amusing. Um, <laughs> But, there, but there's no way to directly respond and have it show up right below. Like on Amazon, you can respond to a comment and it shows up right below as comments about this comment. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like that on iTunes. Um, some of them have taken to editing their 
app's description to say here's what's coming in the next version or here's an answer to some of the common questions, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a hack. It's not really the right place for it in the descriptive text off to the side. But that's the best they've got right now. And ideally, yeah, that you should be able to have the developer say uh, here's my response to this comment. But But not not, not frame it in the context of a review, which would – be well, silly. Well, right. In a record review, you'd never have that, right? And I think that goes back to the basis of this, which is Christina Aguilera isn't going to come in and say, well, actually, this song was intended satirically, and you just didn't understand that. That's not going to happen. Oh, that would I'd love to see that. No, that would be it's, great. It's not going to happen. Um, but in the case of software, you know, you could get it where somebody says, well, it doesn't do this, and the developer can say, well, press this button, and it does do that, jerk. And, <laughs> you know, cranky developers, wait, though they wait, might wait. be. So you're telling me that all those times I get comments that say they're from Steve Jobs, they're not actually from Steve Jobs? Where are those comments? Comments on, on Macworld.com? Those aren't from Steve Jobs. Oh, man. Here I thought I'd found an inside source. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe on maybe on the App Store. Maybe Steve on the Jobs App Store. Post there. Or in reviews of Christina Aguilera's single. I don't know. Mm. So I think uh, the takeaway message from this is that the only um, – iPhone app reviews you can trust are the ones at Macworld.com, obviously. Yes. <laughs> Clearly. Obviously. Clearly. Um, and so now that the um, uh, review process is totally fixed at the App Store, um, <laughs> yes. pause for effect. Yes, they can't see that funny face you just made, Phil. <laughs> what What other changes uh, need to happen at the App Store? If you, if, uh, you were a, put in charge of the App Store for a day... You only had a day to go in and make sweeping changes. Which ones would you make that would improve the process, uh, ideally for the end user, maybe for developers, maybe for Apple itself? I would get rid of all the flashlights. I mean, that's right off the top there. <laughs> but most importantly, No, I more think flashlights. <laughs> everything must be a flashlight. A free market of flashlights. But, I mean, the most important thing that a lot of the developers are still a little wary about is this idea of not of the approval process, of the vetting process, what actually goes on, this sort of black box that Apple's constructed where you put in your application, you know, you wait for a couple weeks, and then Apple comes back and either says yay or nay. Um, and the problem for a lot of developers is that because the enforcement of these rules has seemed at least the perception of it is that it's very capricious, sort of, you know, at the whim of Steve Jobs or whoever is the review board for this. Um, they can put a lot of time and effort into developing an application that ultimately gets rejected and which they have very little understanding of why that application maybe got rejected. So they don't we, get a they don't get a lot of feedback. It just they, they get back a, an email that says no and, and that's it or it's a little it's a little more than that, but it's oftentimes the problem is that the rules that are often or the reasons that are often given are not ex- were never explicitly stated at the outset. And we've seen a lot of examples of this. For example, the Podcaster app, which I believe Chris Breen wrote a piece on today as well, it has now moved to the jailbreak platform um, because Apple denied it on the basis that it duplicated functionality in iTunes. Um, and that is not explicitly stated as far as we know in the rules. Like a lot of developers were saying, you know, this was never – we were never told that that was something that we couldn't do or that that was an issue. Uh, and so they they feel like they're if they're going to put a lot of time and effort into developing an application, they want to have some sort of assurance off the top of whether or not 
uh, Apple's going to accept it. And several of them have told me that they would even be willing to, you know, pay money for this as a feature if they wanted to, like, put in a tiered system in the Apple developer connection saying, you know, okay, you can have this sort of program where, you know, you pay us X amount of money and we will, like, you know, give you an approval process that's, you know, if you want to invest in it. I, be- I believe the current process for approval is they gather in a in a windowless room, the 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 star chamber of Apple executives. They pass around a um, a container, and each one drops a marble in. And if there's just one blue marble amid the red marbles, then the app gets rejected. Is, is th- how that works? I thought it had something to do with a conch shell, but mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. So the, your your change would be uh, uh, change the approval process. Well, either that or just reject everything. Come on. <laughs> okay. How about you, Jason? You 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 are the you are the czar of the the app store. And how would you what what under your brutal rule what changes would be made? Now, I I agree with Senator Morin <laughs> on many of these points. But when I am appointed secretary of the app store, I have a uh, we'll call it a three point plan. Although there may be more than three. But we'll start with three. Number one is a clear set of rules for the um, for apps that are being brought in the store. A very clear set of rules. They could be very narrow. They could be very broad. But as long as they're clear, so a developer knows before they begin writing their software uh, that this program is going to make it on the store. So that's number one. Clear set of rules. And I think that I think that Senator Morin and I can agree on that point. Absolutely, Mr. Snell. Thank you. So thank you. Yes, thank you. And we're addressing each other, Phil, Mm. because I know that that's – oh, I I just addressed you. Oh, no. But but you're not making eye contact and I think that's very disrespectful. (laughs) Um, So so I think that a a system for app developers to rate their own apps in terms of um, age and content type so that parental controls – uh, people who want to filter based on certain kinds of content, it can be done, but it doesn't require Apple's intervention. So I think that they need to come up with a system where developers can say on their end, not with some board overseeing them, that they can follow the rules and say this is for adults. This I'm not saying let porn on the store, but I'm saying being able to say this is for all ages, this is for adults, this is for teenagers, this contains some you know, like explicit or clean or – no rating, which is what you have for podcasts and TV shows and movies and music on the iTunes store today. I think that that if you get that kind of clarity um, from the developers, then you don't need it from um, from Apple, and Apple doesn't want to be playing that game. And I think Apple needs a pre-approval system, um, which which Senator Morin alluded to, which is the ability to come up front and say. Um, Look, Apple, I want to write this app. Reassure me that it's going to go in. Um, And if they need to pay more to be part of a select developer program to do that, I think that's a great idea. But I think that – I think developers need reassurances and they need speed. So the fourth part of my three-part plan because I'm always giving you more. I'm always giving you more. The fourth part of my my three-part plan is um, some freedom when it comes to software updates, that developers with minor bug fix updates should be able to get those updates pushed live uh, rapidly, perhaps automatically. Um, And some of my competitors will say, uh, if you do that, you're opening up Pandora's box and they could make changes that are crazy. But Apple ultimately controls the store here. If you if you misbehave, your developer account can get shut down. I think there's a certain degree of trust that needs to be invested in these developers where 
if they've got a version 1.0.1 that fixes some bugs that they don't have to wait a week and a half for it to get on the store. So that's my four-point plan for fixing the App Store today. Thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Mr. Moderator. I cannot believe that neither one of you talked about better organization in the App Store itself and making it easier to find specific apps. I'm voting for a third-party candidate. I'm <laughs> there, sorry. There won't be – the problem is there won't be anything but flashlight apps if developers don't have some degree of certainty. I mean, yeah. The, 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 I mean, what it comes back to, to, to answer your question, Mr. Moderator, um, is the iTunes App Store is built like the iTunes Music Store. And it goes to user reviews, but it also goes to organization. There needs to be better organization. You've sort of got a reverse sort by date and a sort by name. And, you know, it, this is an opportunity for other sites, including our own, to build a better mousetrap for the App Store. Um, and I know a lot of people are working on that because the App Store, you know, I think originally people thought the App Store was going to be this great thing and there would be nothing else that would be necessary. You'd just go there and you'd find what you wanted. And now there are 3,000-plus apps in there and it's really hard to find anything. And it, it is a huge problem. I don't dispute that it's a huge problem. It just wouldn't be what I would do on day one. Well, I say first Senator Snell was for the App Store. Then he was against it. First he had a three-point plan. Now he has a four-point plan. I, I just don't know what to believe, Mr. Moderator. Mm. If I if I can respond to Senator Moran's statement there, <laughs> I don't believe I, you I, can. I think I think that he, initially he wanted nothing but but um, he said, and we had this on tape. He wanted nothing but flashlight apps in the App Store. And is this the kind of leadership we need in the App Store today? Do we need that more flashlights? Taken out of context. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to uh, step in there and, and move on to another subject. Uh, something else that happened in the news in the past week related to the iPhone uh, platform, Apple. Missed a deadline as the calendar turned to October of delivering uh, a push notification system. So it wasn't and so much that something happened as something didn't happen. Something didn't the happen. The calendar turned. The calendar turned and nothing else happened. Um, let's talk a little bit about what a push notification system does and uh, who this affects and whether it's that big a deal that, that Apple is, is taking its sweet time on this issue. Well, developers were very enthusiastic about the idea when Steve Jobs first brought it up uh, during the uh, WWDC keynote, um, at which point I think he handed things off to uh, Scott Forstall, who talked a bit about how this platform, how this uh, system would work. The idea being that, uh, as you know, iPhone, only one application can run at a time on the iPhone. So there's no way to have applications running in the background. So if you've got, say, an instant messenger client running, it's pretty much the only thing that's running. If you go back to the home screen, that instant messenger client is no longer running, so you can't get instant messages anymore. Um, and this this is frustrating for some people because they're used to having a very multitasking, uh, multi-application system, like with their, you know, with their Mac. Um, and so the question was, how do you solve that issue? Now, Apple seems, you know, their opinion is, well, we don't want to open up background processing because there's a very finite amount of resources on the iPhone, and we really want to focus on not having uh, processes take over the phone so that you have to start force quitting things or certain things start eating up a bunch of RAM, and you'll have to restart your iPhone all the time. And so the system they came up with was this idea of push notifications, which is to say that the phone would basically have one persistent connection. And all of any application could sort of subscribe to this connection and have their updates pushed down to the phone. And then when, say, a message comes in on your instant messenger client, it would pop up a little number like you see on your mail client or on the app store there. 
uh, and that you could then switch to that application and get your message. So uh, uh, let me let me jump in there. This is primarily messaging applications, or what kind of other applications does a a, a background push notification thing affect? In theory, anything that that draws content over the network, but um, primarily things you know like instant messengers or possibly Twitter applications or uh, something where it's downloading information over the network. So. Uh, some of the the applications already have this kind of stuff built in, like the Apple applications anyway. So like Mail, App Store, your phone application tells you when you've missed a call or what have you. Um, but there are definitely people who want to use this for uh, that sort of th- the things that background processing might be used for. Um, and that is a, a, something that they can't do at present. Um, right. So if you used AIM with this function in place, then you could set AIM to stay logged in even when you weren't using it. And if somebody sent you a chat message, you'd get a little bubble that would pop up whatever you were doing that says you've got a new chat message like you do with SMS today. Right. And then you, to do anything with it, you'd need to open up AIM and it would reconnect and it would get the messages. But right now, if you close AIM... Um, even if it stays logged in, there's no way to know that messages are accumulating until you switch back. So, you know, it's limited. It's not a, a cure-all for the lack of background processes on the iPhone, but at least it gets lets things on the network send you notes saying, hey, you need to open that app. It's a, it's a compromise. I mean, and, you know, this is what they were alluding to is, hey, you know, in theory we could do background processing. There are other mobile devices that do it, but we don't want you to have to deal with you know, managing apps that go rogue, as it were. Um, and, you know, we don't want to have to deal with things like the battery power that's going to get chewed up by multiple apps running at the same time uh, and all pulling stuff over the network, for example. And so they kind of thought presented this as a compromise solution. So is it that big a deal that the September self-imposed September deadline has come and gone and push notification is still out there in the cloud, as it were, um, and, and not, not a reality? It's not going to be the death of the phone or of Apple by any means. Uh, you know, is this a big deal? Not particularly. I mean, I think the, the issue, more to the point, is that, you know, Apple did promise this, this system in September. And, and they haven't commented on saying, you know, if they just came and said, oh, you know what, we need a little more time to sort of work on this, then I think, you know, all, any any sort of, you know, concern about it would be you know, assuaged. But uh, because they're being their usual secretive selves in this regard... It's a little bit like, oh, well, okay, why, why did it get pushed back? Is there something wrong? You know, like that provides more opportunity for people to speculate about what might be a problem with this or anything. But uh, for the record, I think they did. They just, they they were focusing on other things and the, this deadline slipped. But I imagine we'll see it in the next few months. Well, we had the 2.1 software update that came out and it wasn't in there. And, you know, I don't think it takes a... A, a genius to to figure out that perhaps Apple looked at that update and said we're not going to make it f- for this feature. Let's wait and do it right because we've seen enough examples of Apple not waiting and doing it wrong this year that I think to their credit, if that's what happened in saying, look, if we're going to do this and we're going to have third third party apps actually adopt this, we don't want to do it wrong and then have to fix it and break all the apps. Let's just wait and do it right. I was going to jump in there and say, let me engage in a little of my own base speculation and and ask how. Uh, whether the mobile me problems at it, uh, might have influenced Apple's decision to to take its time on this. I think they probably did. I mean, if nothing else, I think they're realizing this year that 
scaling something is extremely difficult in terms of like something when they're testing like mobile me or the app store with a limited number of people or you know sort of narrow testing and then all of a sudden when you open that up to the fact that there are you know however nine million iphones or whatever out there right now that's a lot of people and then there are thousands of applications that might want to use this we're starting to talk about pretty substantial resources and i think this is something they've learned this year is that when you we talk about the exponential number of increase in resources uh, when these are opened up to the public uh, presents some very unique challenges <laughs> and they don't want to end up with a situation like they ended up with mobile me where it just it, it ran into tons of problems for users We've just about reached our government-mandated time of talking about the iPhone on the Macworld podcast. So I thought we'd finish up by having uh, you guys recommend one iPhone app, one iPhone app only, and please don't let it be a flashlight app. I yield to my colleague from California. um, I'm going to say... Um, I'm going to give you two, Phil. No, oh. one! <laughs> hey, are you taking one of mine? <laughs> um, I'm going to say Instapaper Pro, which we recently reviewed at Macworld.com, which is a great reading utility. You basically put a bookmark in your browser toolbar. You find a web page with an article you want to read later. You press the bookmark. It flashes up a little window that says saved and goes away. Uh, but when you then... Go to Instapaper on the phone and press reload. Um, It's got the article. It strips out a lot of the HTML junk so you can just read the article. And it has this really nifty tilt scrolling feature where you can actually just hold the phone in your hand and as you tilt it backward a little bit, um, the story scrolls. So you can do it with one hand and don't have to be tapping or flicking in order to to advance it. And and that's – that's a great little little uh, great little reading app, and I've been enjoying it. And it is reviewed at MacWorld.com, as is the lovely QWERTY, which is not my pick, but is the best Boggle application on the iPhone for those who like Boggle. Please, and I reviewed that on MacWorld.com. Please disregard any comments about QWERTY. I specifically <laughs> asked for just one. Are you going to? You told the jury to disregard it. Did yes. You? Are you going to put it in the show notes? No. So QWERTY, Q-U-O-R-D-Y, is just for the podcast listeners unless Phil caves and puts it in the show notes. Dan? I, I've only let's, see, let's, see, let's see if Dan can follow the rules. <laughs> I, I am a by-the-book sort of guy. Uh, so I'm going to use the same criteria I apparently use for judging all of my favorite iPhone applications, which is how well they, uh, um, involve, uh, how well they entertain small children. Uh, and so for that to that end, I, I was going to recommend a program called Line Writer, which is based on I think a Flash application that you can play online. And basically, it's uh, it's kind of like you know building your own little roller coaster. Uh, you can draw lines, and you basically have a little guy who rides a sled, and you can draw these little lines and make loop de loops and jumps and all this stuff. And then you can run your little guy, your little sled guy, down the hill and see if he crashes and burns or if he makes it over the jump or what have you. And yeah, I was babysitting for a couple of my small cousins last night, and that was that was good for a good ten twenty minutes of entertainment, which is not insubstantial when we're talking about like a four year old and a two year old. Uh, so that would be my pick, Mister Moderator. You know, that's just like Dan Morin to uh, and the rest of you insiders to go <laughs> by the book and follow what the moderator says. And some of us 
if you're on the outside, (laughs) some of us that are on the outside are mavericks, and sometimes we answer two questions when there's only one question asked. Sometimes you don't even answer the same question that they ask. So, so, so that's what I'm saying is that if you want the kind of person who will be asked for one app and will give you two for the price of one. Please consider me. Thank you very much, Mr. Moderator. Well, I I hope we've given the listening audience a lot to think about today. I'd like to thank both Jason Snell and Dan Morin for participating in this free-form roundtable discussion. And now I'd like to throw it back to the one man on the Macworld staff with an ounce of professionalism in him, Chris Breen. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. I'd like to thank Adelaide Breen, Philip Michaels, Jason Snell, Dan Morin, and of course you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at Macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at Macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.